would do to have the kind of faith it takes to climb out of this boat of men under the crashing waves to step out of my comfort zone into the realm of the unknown where Jesus is and he's holding out his hand but the waves are calling out my name and they laugh at me Reminding me of all the times I've tried before and failed The ways they keep on telling me Time and time again, boy, you never win You never win remember back a few weeks ago the first buffer video that we played had some pretty shocking things in it and I shared with you that as we went through this series of of considering what it looks like to take every voice every thought captive that that you would see a difference in that transition in that buffer video and and I'm excited for two things one you've begun to see a glimpse of that transition just through the video what things look like when we take every thought captive but I'm sad because we're quickly coming to the end of our series on Take Every Thought Captive, and I've really enjoyed it personally um, as I've studied through it, as I've put this things, these sermons together. But over the last few weeks, we've challenged you to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ because God's Word is flawless. We've challenged you to do this because His plan is flawless. And I'm really excited about next week. Uh, it's going to be a completely different approach to taking every thought captive because I want to share with you what it looks like when a community of Christians begins to take every thought captive, we've got uh, some special guests that are going to come up here and share the stage with me and share with you all kind of the outcome of what happens when we take a moment and look at God's Word and then see how that challenges our life or what changes have come about to that. So I'm excited about next Sunday, but today I'm going to be sharing with you how we should take um, every thought captive because God's expectations are flawless. And you may be thinking, well, What's the difference between God's plan and God's expectation? And I'm glad you're here because we're going to talk about that. Will you pray with me? Father God, I thank you uh, once again that we can be here. I thank you that we can look at your word, that we can look at your expectations that you have for us, not just today, but from the beginning of time. And we can see that they're relevant even today. We can look at your expectations and see that it's, it's nothing we can't step up to. And so, Lord, as as we look at what it is to take every thought captive from your word to the obedience of Christ because your expectations are flawless, I pray that it will stir in us a desire to to step up towards your expectations. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Now, when you think about the fact that God's expectations are flawless and you think about that in the context of the creation story and of Adam and Eve, their sin in the garden. I think it should bring pause to how we treat God's expectations today. Here's the thing. In the garden, there was really only one expectation that God had. If you, if you just kind of boil it all down, God said to Adam and Eve, you may freely eat from any tree in the garden, but you are not to eat from the tree in the center of the garden. That was basically it. Now, that was the tree of, of the knowledge of good and evil. And here's the thing. It's not like God said to them, Adam and Eve, 
Over here, I got these worms and dirt cakes that you're going to eat. And that's what you're going to find sustenance in that. It's not real appealing. It may not taste good, but it's got what you need. You eat that. And, and then he showed him this amazing fruit tree in the middle of the garden and said, but you, you eat your worms and dirt, but you stay away from this tree. God didn't do that. You see, our God is a giver of good gifts. He, he's a giver of amazing gifts, actually. And he gives Adam and Eve paradise as their home. Think about this. The animals are even getting along, all of them at this time. And you can bet that the fruit on every other tree in the garden was delectable. He didn't give them a fruit that tasted like an unripe persimmon no matter what year it was. He didn't do that to them. And those of you who have had an unripe persimmon are going, oh man, Whew. God didn't set them up for failure. He gave them everything. He provides for our needs. He provided for their needs. But they got distracted. They, they were tempted for the moment and they forgot who was in charge and they forgot what he expected from them. Does it sound familiar? Yeah, I was thinking the same things. The Israelites did that same stuff as they journeyed. So you thought I was going to come at you right there, but I, I went sideways. The Israelites did the same thing as they journeyed through the desert. The funny thing about the Israelites is that when Moses first came to tell them what God expected, when you read the scriptures there, they were agreeing with Moses before he even finished telling them what God expected from them. They were like, we'll do it. We're all in. Get us out of here. We, we've left Pharaoh. We're in. And then Moses actually goes up to the Ten Commandments. He's, he's with God for 40 days on the mountain. And God is not just setting forth the Ten Commandments. He's giving him other decrees and things that he's going to share with them. And when he comes down, 40 days, 40 days, the Israelites had already begun to worship a golden calf. Man, come on. I wish I could say that this was the only time that something like this would happen. But time and time again, the Israelites, like Adam and Eve, would forget who was in charge, and, and they would start mumbling. And then something bad would happen, and they'd get caught up in the badness, and then they would cry out to God, and, and God would forgive them, and He would restore them. Does it sound familiar? See, the funny thing is that God's expectation... His expectations for the Israelites never changed. The change that happened with the Israelites, that was both good and bad change. That happened in their hearts and in the minds of the Israelites. That, that change didn't happen in God. His expectation was the same. His, God's expectations never change. If they did, he would be a contradiction. And our God is not a contradiction. We need to understand that. His expectations are flawless. And there's a reason he set things up the way that he does. We take the Old Testament sacrifices, for example. In the Old Testament, God has often given animal sacrifices. Why is that not being practiced in Christian churches today? Well, the significance of the Old Testament sacrifices depends on which sacrifice you're talking about. There were many. Uh, for example, the sin offering was an atonement for a personal, willful sin. These are in Leviticus. Uh, the guilt offering was an atonement for more general sins or for an accidental sin. The free will offering was a voluntary offering to give praise and thanks to God. The fellowship offering was similar in some ways to the free will offering. They would come together to give thanks and praise to God. The peace offering was centered around thanksgiving and around God's um, protection and God's provision for the Israelites. There were many other specific types of sacrifices, especially, like I said, read through Leviticus and get an idea of this. Because the thing is, all of these sacrifices had certain ways that you should do them. 
All of these sacrifices, for the priest especially, there was a certain way he was to approach the throne of God before the people. And it would also include the scapegoat offering on the Day of Atonement, the daily sacrifice for the people, the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement. The priest would put his hands on the goat and he would pray over the goat, asking God to forgive the sins of the people. And, and essentially while he did that, all the sins of the people were going on this goat and then someone led this poor goat out into the wilderness where it was devoured by an animal. And it was a symbolic thing of how our sin, or their, their sin was devoured and was, was given up for that year. They were forgiven for the year. And if you start thinking about this, there's something maybe you didn't connect with in worship this morning. Maybe you're thinking, well, I didn't really get that. And you want to get a better understanding of what worship is about? Read through Leviticus. See, because sometimes we come in thinking that it's about what the building looks like, and it's about the, the, the painting, and it's about what's on PowerPoint, and it's about the song we sang. I really connected with that song. Um, it really spoke to me or, or whatever. And in reality is sometimes we come in here to worship God and we think it's about us. I can't imagine a priest in the Old Testament being excited and getting ready for worship because he's going to go and kill a bunch of goats. Honey, set out my best robe. <laughs> no, I can't imagine we'd be excited about that. And I get it. Uh, we're hunter-gatherers by nature. I have nothing against you know, getting a good deer and skinning him out, making some venison jerky. I'm not against any of that. But we're talking about worship. If we were to sacrifice an animal right here, I'm not going to. Think about that's what happened when you went to church. That was part of the expectation. As a sacrifice would be made on your behalf. That's, that's blood. That's disemboweling an animal. That smells bad when that happens. All right. It's it's then sprinkling the blood around. All right. Then it's burning the animal on the altar and then having to clean it all up afterwards. I can't imagine a priest going, yes, it's sacrifice day. I get to go in. And and it wasn't even like he was providing necessarily for he was providing for your sin to be atoned for for the moment is what he was providing. But that's a lot of work. And I just can't imagine being grateful that the sacrifice I mean, I can't imagine, however, a priest being grateful that the sacrifice they were making wasn't their son, like what Abraham was asked to do. I, I can imagine that, but I just can't imagine them being excited to come in and, and prepare to do that on behalf of the, other, of the people. Bottom line is this. The Old Testament sacrifices were commanded by God so the Jews could have fellowship with him. These offerings, these sacrifices, they did not provide salvation in the sense that Jesus' death does. They had to be offered again and again. The blood of bulls and goats had to be continually offered. I want to challenge you. We're going to spend some time in Hebrews chapter 9 today. You can go ahead and turn there. But I want to challenge you this week to look through Hebrews chapter 8 and 9 um, because we're going to have a thorough discussion on this. Uh, but the final analysis if you will the sacrifices were really there to make obvious our position before God because our sin separates us from God and the sacrifices were there to bring about a right relationship between the Israelites and God Romans 7 and Colossians 2 point out that the sacrificial sacrificial system of the Old Testament was kind of a prefiguring of what we have in Christ and this is made clear also in Hebrews we don't have to practice animal sacrifices today and I'm grateful for that. They are no longer needed. In fact, God has said, he has abrogated the old covenant. It is no longer in effect. 
is no longer in force. Now that Jesus has fulfilled the law, he was the final sacrifice. Amen. We don't have to do that. Colossians chapter 2 says what I believe is one of the clearest descriptions of where the Old Testament sacrificial system comes into play now. It describes the Old Testament as having been canceled, even describing it as being opposed to us now because it was nailed to the cross. And if we were to sacrifice animals for sin today, it would be a clear statement to God that we do not believe the blood of Christ is effective in removing our sin. So we do not have to do it. And we've looked at these sacrifices for a brief moment through the lens of God's expectation. There was a purpose for it. There was an order in the way it was supposed to happen. But I also want to look at more than just that aspect of worship. I want to look at the tabernacle. I want to look at the place where these sacrifices happen. In both Hebrews 8, 3-6 and Exodus 25, 8 and 9, God gives some instruction to Moses. He says to them, he says, Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. According to, and this is Exodus 25, 8 through 9, according to all that I'm going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it. Now, I want to allow me to translate that to you in today's simple English. God said to Moses, You better follow the exact pattern so I may dwell among men. See, sometimes we get caught up in, in the what ifs. Well, well, why was the tabernacle this way? Why did this happen? Why? And I'm going to get into some of that, but the bottom line. God said, you make it just like I'm telling you so that I may dwell among men. God's expectation is that he wants to be around us. He wants a relationship with us. In the Old Testament, he walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. He spoke to Moses. He spoke to Abraham. He he walked with Enoch, just to name a few. And then in the New Testament, he sent his son Jesus, God in the flesh, to be around humans to teach us, to love them, to touch them, to show them his love, to show us his love. God expects relationship from those that claim to be his followers. Relationship with God only happens when we're spending time in his word, when we're praying and applying his word to our lives. So what's the big deal with the tabernacle? I mean, it's it's just a big tent so God can be close to men, right? No. I want to give you a general description of the tabernacle. Just kind of picture this in your mind. It was set up like this. First, there was the outer curtain. Went all the way around. Okay? And then there was the courtyard. In the courtyard, everyone would gather. Then also in the courtyard was the bronze altar and the laver. I'm going to talk about those in a second. You, you also had, then you had the inner curtain. This area was called the most holy place. And in it were the table of showbread and the lampstand and the golden altar of incense. Then you had the curtain that separated the holy of holies from everyone else. Inside the holy of holies was the Ark of the Covenant, and inside the Ark was the Ten Commandment tablets, Aaron's rod that was budding, and a jar of manna. There were two cherubim around the Ark, and then the mercy seat or the atonement cover, as it was called. And that curtain that separated this Holy of Holies from the rest of the tabernacle was also referred to as the veil. And actually, the word in Hebrew means screen or divider or separator that hides. What was this curtain hiding? Well, basically, it was shielding a holy God from sinful man. Whoever entered the Holy of Holies was entering into the very presence of God. In fact, anyone who entered the Holy of Holies that was not a priest would die on sight. And even the high priest, God's chosen mediator with his people, could only pass through that veil and enter into this sacred dwelling place once a year. And it was after cleansing and, and a proper uh, setting up of, before going in. God wanted a relationship 
with his people. But the design of the tabernacle and the veil and the expectations of God that had to be met in order for the priest to come into his presence on their behalf is a reminder to us that God's holiness is not something to be trifled with. Habakkuk tells us that God's eyes are too pure to look on evil, that he cannot tolerate sin. So the priests offered gifts and sacrifices. And what was the purpose? What was God's expectation for these sacrifices? In answering these questions, we need to remember once again that God's expectations are flawless. And this is where we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 9. I want you to see what the writer of Hebrews shares about the tabernacle and the sacrifices of the Old Testament and the way that we should now understand things. Hebrews 9 verse 1 says, Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, outer, or excuse me, there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod, which budded and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. Now, when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed, while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time for reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Verse 13 says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who, the, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions <clears throat> that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the internal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every covenant had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with blood. And according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies 
of the things in heavens in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood. That is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment, so Christ, also having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. You see, the sanctuary, the, the tabernacle on earth is a copy, a shadow, of, if you will, of what was in heaven. The items in the sanctuary were a copy of the true one. Hebrews 9.11 says, there is a greater and more perfect tabernacle in heaven. It wasn't God just coming to dwell amongst men. It was God giving men a glimpse of what is in heaven. The bronze altar was symbolic for the coming sacrifice of Jesus. God was telling the Jews about the ministry of Jesus in heaven. The laver was symbolic for baptism. It, see, to enter into a relationship with God, one must, must be washed in baptism. 1 Peter 3.21 says it, it's not about a physical cleansing as at the laver. That's where they would wash physically before they would do something. It's not about removing dirt from flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The showbread on the right, there were 12 loaves for the 12 tribes. They equal the spiritual food we should be eating. John 6, 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. The golden lampstand in the tabernacle with its seven branches, each with a bowl that kept perpetually burning. Zechariah 4, 1 through 6 tells us the lampstand equals the Holy Spirit, which we receive when we are baptized and enter into a relationship with God. On the right, Jesus. On the left, the Holy Spirit. And in the center, the Father. The golden altar of incense was not used for sacrifices or offerings. The altar of incense is symbolic of our prayers which come right before the presence of God because of what Jesus has done for us. The curtain, the veil showed the separation between man and God. Anyone who looked behind it, even just peeked behind it, the curtain, they saw God and they died on the spot. Only once a year, only after sprinkling the blood of a bull and a ram and a goat, only the high priest could enter. And I think the coolest thing about all of this is that in the heavenly tabernacle, there's no curtain. See, when, when we get to heaven, there's, there's nothing that will be separating us from seeing God. Matthew twenty-seven fifty-one says, And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. It was at that time when Jesus died that, that that took place in the tabernacle, in the temple. And God left the temple in Jerusalem at that time, never to take up residence there again. And Jesus entered in a new and greater tabernacle in heaven three days later. Well, actually, it was more than that, but he rose from the grave three days later. After he transfigured, he went into heaven. But he's now ministering for us as our high priest. He used himself for the final sacrifice and he is now our high priest standing before God. And he expects a relationship with us. God expects a relationship with us through his son, Jesus. He expected a relationship 
Back at the very beginning in creation with Adam and Eve, he expected a relationship with Abraham. He expected a relationship with the Israelites. All through the scripture, we see that God expects a relationship with us. He expected it back then. He expects it now. Let's not miss it like some of the people in Jesus' day missed. They, they were so busy, caught up with, with some of the legalities of, of worship, with, with some of the, the um, extra things they added to the Ten Commandments so they wouldn't sin, that they missed the fact that Jesus was trying to tell them, my Father wants a relationship with you, and that's why he sent me. You see, the same God who sent Jesus was the same God who created the universe, was the same God who gave the Ten Commandments, was the same God who explained how sacrifices should happen, was the same God who explained how the tabernacle should be built, was the same God. He explained in detail how how the ark should have been built to provide for Noah and his family. And that same God has shared with us what we need to do. And we shouldn't expect anything different. Listen to what Jesus said to them in John chapter 5, verses 33 through 47. Jesus said, You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. But the testimony which I receive is not from man. But I say these things so that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was sinning, or was shining. John wasn't sinning. He was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John for the works which the Father has given to me to accomplish. The very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you for you do not believe him who he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these, and listen closely, Jesus is saying this to the Pharisees. You search the scriptures because you think that in them that you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you did not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another, and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do you think that I will accuse you before the Father? The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. You see... But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus just said to the Pharisees, to the people in that time, he said, hey, you want to keep all the old ways. You say you you claim to be of Moses. You want to keep the Ten Commandments. You want to keep all these things. All these traditions, all these things you grew up with. All of that. It's about me. That's what Jesus is trying to tell them. You keep, you keep saying, you won't listen to me because we want to listen to Moses. Moses wrote about me. That's what Jesus is telling him. It's the whole Old Testament. It wasn't called the Old Testament then, but the Old Testament is about Jesus. Almost everywhere you look, you will see that. And here's the thing. The Old Testament finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And the New Testament is the story of the Old Testament being fulfilled. And through all of that, God's expectation for man hasn't changed. 
Since the first day he walked in the garden with Adam, he expects a relationship with his creation. And truthfully, he has a relationship with each and every one of us. With some of us, it may be a good relationship. And with others, it may be a little bit more on the dysfunctional side. But he has some kind of a relationship with every one of us. We all have a relationship with God. The question to ask yourself this morning as we come into our response time is this. Is your relationship with God where it should be? Think on that. And if it isn't, consider what you're going to do to change it. Maybe you'd like some prayer and some accountability in your life as you begin to answer this question. The elders are here. They would love to pray with you this morning. But as we stand and sing our response song, think about God's flawless expectation. Think about all the things he has done to pursue a relationship with us. And think about your relationship with him today and respond accordingly. Will you stand and sing with us? Before we head out this morning, I want to say it's been great to be here with you all. It's been exciting to share this series. I'm really excited about next week. I ask that you would pray this week for a few things. One, the people that are going to be up here with me next week because they're not always used to that and you guys can be intimidating so I want you to commit to praying for those folks. You don't need to know who they are. God knows who they are. Just say, hey, Lord, be with the people. They're going to help John bring this all together next week. Um, next thing, I'd like you to pray for Seth McManus and for Rita Ferguson. Both are on, on mission trips. Seth is finishing out an almost three-month mission trip in Nairobi, Kenya. He's going to be here August 13th to share about that. Rita's right about in the middle of her mission trip in the Amazon. Uh, and so just Pray for them. And also, Debbie and Don Dowdy asked me to mention uh, Mary Faust, which is Debbie's mother, has been in the hospital, at Huntsville Hospital this week. Uh, she has a blood clot. She's having some issues with her lungs and a, a few other things. But just keep them in prayer. Keep the family in prayer, uh, if you would. And, you know, that's one of the things I love most about being here is that we can take all of that stuff, whether it's good news, bad news, a time to cry, a time to mourn, a time to celebrate, and we can share with each other, and we can do just that. So this morning, before we go, will you all pray with me? Father God, I thank you that we can look around this room, that we can share excitement, we can share burdens, we can share concerns with one another, and that we can petition one another to, to lift up those things. And so at this moment, Lord, I lift up Seth. Uh, McManus, and I just ask that you would continue to watch over him, to be with him and his whole team uh, as they are in Nairobi. The things they've seen, the things they've learned, the the impressions that they've made on people. We're grateful for that opportunity that they have, and as as they prepare to travel home and as they spend some time, kind of decompressing from where they've been. I just pray that you would continue to fill them. I pray that you would keep them safe as they travel, uh, and we look forward to spending some time with Seth in the near future. Lord, I. I lift up Rita Ferguson. I ask that you would watch over her and those that she is traveling with as, as, as they're on a medical mission trip through the Amazon, Lord. Uh, keep them safe. As, as they provide physical healing, I pray also that they will, will provide spiritual healing and being a reflection of you to those that they come in contact with and ask that you also would keep them safe. Lord, I lift up Mary Faust and uh, you know her situation and, and you know... Um, 
you know the doctors and the nurses and everyone that's going to be caring for her. And so I just pray that you would just help her to, to find comfort, to find rest and relaxation, to find peace. I pray that you'd be with, with Debbie and, and the family uh, as they spend time along her side this next week, uh, that they too would find your strength and your comfort. And as, as, as Mary shared with Debbie yesterday before she left, when she grabbed her arm and said, don't worry, God's got this. Lord, we know you've got this. We praise you for that. Lord, I pray that wherever we are, we'll pause this week and take note and look into our relationship with you as individuals. I'm thankful that you've made a way for us to be personally involved with you through your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Will you sing this last song with us?